Our next lesson this morning comes from the book of Acts, reading the very opening verses of Acts, uh, the first 11 verses. Let us continue to listen for the Word of God. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from from the beginning until the day when he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, He presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, And a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder if uh, you have completed all your plans and uh, celebrations for this coming week, uh, for the festival that is before us. Uh, If you weren't paying attention as Donna led uh, our children's time this morning, you may wonder, what in the world is he talking about? If you were sitting here in the sanctuary, you might be nudging one another saying, have we missed something? What's, what's he talking about? What kind of festival? I wouldn't be surprised uh, if you are not aware of it because it is a festival that is largely ignored in much of the Christian church within the Presbyterian church included. And what I am referring to is Ascension Day. Now, nearly every week as we profess our faith through the apostles, a Nicene Creed or another creed, Uh, we bear witness to the reality of the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, we don't pay much attention to that. What we read in Luke, both at the close of his first book, the Gospel, and at the beginning of his second book, uh, Acts, if you weren't aware of this, Luke is the author of both of these records, and they are both addressed to someone named Theophilus. Was that an actual person in the early church? We don't know. The name Theophilus means one who loves God, so it may be for any believer this, these books were intended. But two volumes to Theophilus, the first Luke and the second the book of Acts. And according to both of these, Jesus spends some 40 days appearing to his disciples, working with them alongside them, telling them what is to come. They are to wait, as Donna reminded us, uh, for the promised spirit to come. They are to gather together in Jerusalem. And then he leads them out to the Mount of Olives where he is ascended. It is as if he is caught up into a cloud and ascends into heaven for his exaltation. And we say he is now seated on the right hand of the Father. 
Nearly everyone in Christendom believes in the ascension, but many of us don't pay much attention to it. This morning, I would like for us to examine the ascension and what it means, what is its significance for our lives as believers. It's interesting, when I was visiting in Jerusalem just a few years ago, I went to the traditional site of the ascension of Jesus there on the Mount of Olives. And among Christians, uh, there were some others there, uh, Muslims. Muslims celebrate the ascension of Jesus. They don't celebrate his resurrection, but they do celebrate his ascension, which I found to be fascinating. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, Ascension Day is one of those high holy days, if you will, when Mass is mandatory for faithful Catholics. They are expected to go to Mass on Ascension Day. Anglicans and Episcopalians sometimes have uh, Ascension Day services. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if there are those services going on this week. Lutherans are rather big on uh, the celebration of the Ascension. In fact, notice how many uh, Lutheran churches are actually named Ascension Lutheran Church. So it's an, a doctrine, a belief, an experience in the life of Jesus that is remembered and celebrated. But for us as Presbyterians, that's not always been so. I think we are guilty uh, of largely ignoring this day and its significance, though we profess we believe in it. Uh, the Lutherans were the part of the Protestant Reformation that uh, got a head start from the rest of us in dealing with the importance of the ascension. Maybe that is because Luther had a slightly different uh, position toward the scriptures than did the followers of Calvin and Zwingli uh, in Switzerland. Uh, Luther believed if it, if it wasn't forbidden in the scripture, then it was probably all right, all right to be a part of worship. But Calvin, who was much more rigid in his interpretation of scripture, believed that if something wasn't warranted in scripture, then it probably wasn't okay to be used as a part of worship. And you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, the ascension is in the Bible, isn't it? Yes, it is, and has been forever since we had the Bible. But what's not mentioned is a day set apart in the early church for celebrating the ascension of Jesus. At any rate, this is just an issue that Bible interpreters have had to struggle with in many different times and places and ways over the years. Is what is written in the scriptures just descriptive or is it proscriptive? Is it describing what the practices were in the early church or in ancient Israel or is it prescribing these for us to continue? I thought it would probably be good uh, since we don't talk about ascension very much to focus on ascension on a Sunday, when ascension falls on a Sunday. And then it dawned on me, kind of duh, it'll never fall on a Sunday because ascension takes place 40 days after the resurrection, which is always on a Sunday, a Sunday celebration. So ascension will always occur on a Thursday. At any rate, uh, the, the, we need to think about the impact, the significance of the fact that Jesus has ascended into heaven and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. What difference might this make in our life and in our witness as followers of Christ? We probably, most of us, fall somewhere between those who take it with a strict literalism and those who take it symbolically, metaphorically, theologically. For the literalists, they believe that Jesus was actually caught up into a white puffy cloud of some sort, ascended into heaven, and now is seated personally at the right hand of the Father. 
and those who take it more symbolically or metaphorically believe that this is just a way, theologically, the scriptures are saying that uh, Jesus was received back by his heavenly father, given a place, not just a seat of honor, but a position of honor where he now with the father and the spirit govern and reign in all the universe. It is a position of power and authority at the right hand of Jesus. I remember hearing a story several years ago about a uh, children's Sunday school class and the teacher had asked the children uh, what they believed God was like and how could they describe God the Father. And one little boy said, well, he just knew that he was left-handed. And the teacher asked, well, why would you say that God was left-handed? He said, because Jesus is sitting on his right hand. So I guess he would be in the camp of the literalist, this little guy. But rather than speculating on what actually occurred there that day for the ascension, what it might have looked like had we been there, I would prefer to discuss what ascension means. Uh, and what do we mean when we say that Jesus ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty? The truth behind this doctrinal statement, this vivid imagery, is very important. It was for the framers of the early ecumenical creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And we can apply this doctrine and its benefits to our lives today as followers of Jesus. To begin with, I, I would believe that uh, the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus at the right hand of the fa Father is a powerful affirmation of precisely who this Jesus is now and ought to move us to greater praise and adoration. True, Jesus is the crucified one. He's died for the sins of the world. He is the savior of the sinners and that we all celebrate and because he is the resurrected one, he is also the victor over sin and death and evil. But Jesus now is in a different position. He has ascended. He is reigning. He is now the Lord of the universe and shares sovereign governance of the whole universe as part of the Godhead. Now much in Christianity, and rightly so, focuses us to pay attention to the humanity of God and to the fact that in the person of Jesus, God took on human flesh. God came among us in gentleness and in humility, identifying with us as sinners, with all of our flaws and foibles. He took the form of a servant and he served others. He girded himself with a towel and washed the feet of his disciples. This is the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and we need to profess this truth about him to be sure. But friends, that's not the whole story. The ascension and the exaltation of the crucified and resurrected one reminds us of the rest of the story, as old Paul Harvey used to say years ago. Jesus may have come once in humility and in weakness, but now he reigns in majesty and in power. He may have come once as the Lamb of God, but now he more resembles the Lion of Judah. I read about an interesting tradition that takes place in England. Um, they have parades often on Ascension Day and they parade through the cities and there is a banner at the beginning of the procession and a banner at the end. The banner on the front, at the front of the procession shows a lion, like the Lion of Judah, and the banner at the end of the procession shows a dragon. And symbolically what the uh, Ascension Day Parade is celebrating is the victory of the lion over the dragon of God in Jesus Christ over the powers of Satan. Jesus once bowed in 
wash the dirty feet of disciples. But now Paul says of him that all things have been put under his feet now. The crown of thorns has been removed and now it's placed on the head of those who suffer along with Christ. And the towel of service has been handed over to the Christian church to continue our service to those in need. And the carpenter of Nazareth has assumed a true crown and a royal scepter. And because of all this, more than ever, we should be moved as his followers to offer him our thanks and praise and adoration. As Paul puts it to the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves which you have in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee <clears throat> should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ not only should move us to greater praise, more fervent adoration of our Savior, our risen Savior, but this doctrine can also endow our Christian discipleship with greater meaning. How so? Now we know that the one in whose name we serve, the crucified and risen Savior, is none other than the King of kings and Lord of lords. And not only that, but we dare to believe that through the presence of the Holy Spirit, Christ himself accompanies us as we serve in his name. You see, there is a sense in which the ascension of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus prepares us what, for what is coming ten days hence, the, the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost, ten days after the ascension. So you could say that what happened 40 days after the resurrection was the preparation for what would happen 50 days afterwards, when God through Christ would pour out his spirit upon his followers, upon all human flesh. And Peter says as much in his sermon on the day of Pentecost when he says to the crowd, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. And so it is, or so it was for the disciples, if at first they felt that Jesus seemed to have gone away to be removed from them through his ascension, now, through the promised descent of the Holy Spirit, they could believe that the risen Christ, through the Spirit, was actually present with them in their work and continued his redemptive work <clears throat> through their efforts, <clears throat> through their words and through their deeds. He was personally present with them, and he is personally present with us as we serve in Christ's name. How much more satisfying our discipleship and service would be if we could just remember whose we are and whom we serve and who it is that walks beside us and works beside us as we seek to make a difference in God's world. Back when we were living and studying in Scotland, back in the mid-70s, uh, the lady who lived above us in our flat asked us if we wanted to go on a Sunday, Sunday drive after church. And she would take us around and show us some of the countryside around Edinburgh. And it was a lovely afternoon we spent in her tiny little car driving around uh, the central part of Scotland. 
And I'll never forget, she <clears throat> stopped at a little stone bridge and she said, this is an important place in the history of Scotland. I want to tell you a story here. I said, fine, what is it? She said, well, centuries ago, there was a king of Scotland who had the practice of dressing as a common person, getting on a horse and riding around his kingly realm. And one day he was riding in this area <clears throat> and his horse became lame at this bridge at the creek that it goes over. And there was a farmer who lived nearby who came to his aid and assisted him. Now the farmer didn't know that this was the king of Scotland. He just was, it was someone indeed that he was serving. And so uh, he helped the man and the king never forgot this. So whenever he would be in that area riding around, he would stop and renew his friendship with this old farmer that still didn't know that this was the king of Scotland. Well, one day the farmer received a royal invitation to a banquet that was being hosted by the king for his friends. And he was shocked and amazed that he, a commoner, should receive such an invitation. And so he went, proudly went to the, the banquet hall. And when he got in the banquet hall, he spotted his friend that he had helped. And they were standing beside each other. And the farmer said, when do you suppose the king will arrive? And he said, well, you know, it's a custom that whenever you see the king, you remove your hat. He said, well, I didn't know that. He said, well, did you know that you and I are the only two who haven't removed our hats? Revealing that he was the king of Scotland. I love that story, but it reminds me of this situation. Do we realize that in serving others, we're actually serving the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Do we take literally the words of Jesus when he said, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. What a wonderful realization this is for us as we continue the work of Jesus Christ in the world. Thirdly, the ascension and the exaltation uh, of Jesus our Lord can provide us with genuine comfort as we realize that the risen and ascended and reigning Lord now serves as both our advocate and our high priest before the Father. Jesus represents you and me as sinful people who have trusted in him. You can read all about this in the book of Hebrews. It really focuses on the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. But let me just give you a summary of what Hebrews is saying. Jesus won the right to represent us with his life of obedience and sacrifice. And now having risen and having a position of authority, he is in a great position to represent us, not only to represent us before the Father, but to pray for us. He identifies with us in our suffering, in our problems. He understands what we go through as human beings because he's been one of us. And he pleads for us with his Father. How about that? Jesus is our advocate before the Father. Sometimes uh, in a court of law, a litigant is uh, tempted to represent himself. And usually if he says he wants to represent himself, the judge will give him a kindly hearing, but probably give him uh, some good advice telling him that he, his interest would be better represented if he got some counsel. And also reminding him of that old truth that the man who represents himself in court uh, has a fool for a client. But at any rate, we don't have to represent ourselves. Jesus represents us before the Father. The same Jesus who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows our sins, our weaknesses, our failings, he represents us before the Father. And he has earned the right to do so by his life and death and resurrection. Here are just some of the 
verses from Hebrews that remind us of this incredible truth. For Christ has entered not into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, from Hebrews 9, from Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and blameless, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of his people. He did this once for all when he offered himself up. Hebrews 8. Now the point in what I am saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tent, which is set up not by man, but by the Lord. And lastly from Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sinning. Let us then with confidence, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, wouldn't you agree that the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ gives to us sinners a solid warrant for comfort and confidence when we recognize that Jesus, the very Son of God, is our advocate and our high priest? And finally, it seems to me that the Lord's ascension and exaltation might, might serve as a tremendous ground of hope for each of us as we regard it as a pattern for our own destiny in Jesus Christ, or perhaps as a foretaste of our own inheritance as the children of God. One could argue, I think, that the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ was not some kind of afterthought added to the gospel. It wasn't some literary postscript, if you were, to the story of salvation, but rather it is the dramatic climax of the reconciling work of God. Here we see the final recon reconciliation between God and humanity. Here we see revealed what God had purposed for humanity from all eternity, fellowship and communion with him, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer with, with time without end. In the incarnation, God came down to us in Jesus, but in the ascension and the exaltation, God brings humanity back up to himself. Indeed, Scripture teaches that the destiny of Jesus is the same destiny that belongs to all who are in Jesus Christ. And one of the great passages that affirm this is from Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with that glory that is to be revealed to us. So then, 
we, as we affirm frequently in worship, we believe that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. And to affirm this is greater incentive for praise and our adoration of our risen Lord. To affirm this is to find new meaning in our life's work and service for Jesus. To affirm this is to find comfort as we consider our own judgment and realize that Jesus, our uh, Lord, is our own advocate and intercessor. And to affirm, finally, that we have good hope for ourselves and for those we love as we consider our own eternal destiny. Let us pray. Lord God, we praise you for Jesus Christ, our crucified, risen, and ascended Lord. Grant us the grace not only to suffer with him, but eventually to reign with him in glory. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.